All right. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. If this is your first time here, uh, we especially welcome you. There's a connection card in front of you. Uh, you can fill that out, and there will be an opportunity for you to drop it in one of the stations on each side of the exit, or you can give it to one of our wonderful uh, volunteers this morning, and they'd love to just give you a gift and connect you to uh, the life of our church. We are in Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're in a series entitled titled The Life of Solomon. We're looking at this Old Testament king named Solomon, and we have looked at his life in 1 Kings primarily, and we've done some of the wisdom literature that he wrote, um, one, uh, well, actually poetry that he wrote in Song of Solomon, and this morning we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and next week we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're just going to do this as sort of an encore uh, to this series, and then we'll jump into um, the book of Acts after that, and we'll go through that one, um, the second part of Acts, um, and so we're looking forward to that. I just have a few announcements before we jump in. Uh, this Tonight, we have Integrity students. They'll be meeting in our lobby, so if you are a parent to a student, if you're a student, uh, you can show up and be a part of that at 6.30 in our lobby this evening. We also have, uh, in a couple weeks, uh, Baptism Sunday is in a couple of weeks, and if you want to be baptized, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and want to uh, display that through publicly through baptism, uh, you can let us know that. You can just go to our website, liveintegrity.org slash baptism, or you can just always email us at info at liveintegrity.org. You can also let us know on your connection card, any of those ways. Uh, we, we, we do ask you to go ahead and do that soon so that we can hear your testimony, hear your story. Um, we have, and you wonder, how do we do baptisms here? We have a big old feeding trough that we do on Sunday mornings, and so if you also want to be baptized in the feeding trough, this is your time. Um, the other thing I want to mention, and this is next, and before we jump in, we, um, we're super excited about the opportunity to partner with uh, other church plants, and we shared with you last week uh, about Derek Delane's church in um, Proclamation Church in Nashville, Tennessee. They were able to successfully launch last Sunday. Isn't that awesome? Can we celebrate that church? And um, man, we are just blown away by what God's doing there. I have a, a call in with him this week. I'm looking forward to just hearing uh, really all that God has done. Uh, we, we do ask, man, would you just be generous and, and help uh, that church plant out? And part of that would be uh, we have a, a need here at Integrity that we're trying to make sure that we can take care of first and foremost. Um, we as a church moved into this building by the grace of God uh, two years ago, uh, we have uh, we paid for the, the building, and then we also had a private loan that we did on the renovation. The private loan is almost completely paid off, but we're asking you to help us pay that off and get that taken care of because what we're doing is paying, in the interest of that right now is uh, over two grand uh, to take care of that. And so if we can knock down that interest, man, we, our plan is to take that interest of Two thousand plus dollars that would go just toward uh, just toward church planning, and so we're excited about that opportunity. Help us pay that off. You can do so by just giving to our Gospel Legacy campaign, and our goal is to just get that knocked out in just a few months. I think I, I believe that we can do it, and that would instantaneously go to to other church plants like Proclamation. And so we're just excited to see the gospel be spread. Our mission as a church is mature and multiply believers to leave a gospel legacy. We want to multiply you as you leave and where you live, work, and play, share the gospel. We also want to help other uh, church plants, gospel-centered church plants, be planted. And so uh, I'm excited to be a part of that. I hope you are as well. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump into what God has for us. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your mercy. We're grateful for the, 
the celebration that we had last week of, of Easter and resurrection and what that means for us. And Lord, the, the celebration doesn't end. It continues as we believers live in light of your resurrection. And so God, I pray, Lord, that your word would help us today to know what that means to live our life abundantly, to live our life purposely for your glory and for your gospel. And so God, I pray that your word today would just stir our affections greater for you, that we would be lovers of God and that we would be a witness uh, in this city and throughout the world. And God, I just ask you would help us now as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter one uh, is where we'll be this morning. So my favorite actor is uh, Bill Murray, and I had the opportunity of meeting Bill Murray about nine years ago at a basketball game in Charleston, South Carolina. You can tell he was super excited to meet me, and I'm pretty sure he's sharing the same story with the same picture right now. Um, and I know you, if you've been coming to Integrity for a while, you've seen this picture before. My goal is to make you aware of this every two years that I've met Bill Murray. But one of, he's my favorite actor of all time. It's like a bucket list thing that I got to meet him. But also one of my all-time favorite movies is a movie that was starring Bill Murray uh, called Groundhog Day. Anybody ever seen uh, Groundhog Day? I, I believe Groundhog Day is the most underrated movie of all time where Bill Murray plays a weatherman named uh, Phil Connors, and Phil Connors has to do a report on Groundhog Day. And as he goes to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, he goes to do this report, and he does the report, can't make it back to where he was in Philadelphia. He has to stay in Punxsutawney, and then he wakes up, and it's the same day as it was the previous day. And he wakes up again. He's just reliving the same day over and over and over again, and some meticulous people who've watched this movie multiple times, like myself, said that he did this possibly for three decades, lived the same day over and over and over again. And so what he does, he begins to experiment and give in to uh, in any type of indulgence that he pleases. He gives into uh, food, he gives into uh, money, he gives into sex, and it happens over and over and over again. He never finds meaning. He tries to find meaning in, in education. In music, in, in poetry, in art, he tries to learn how to play piano. He learns how to be a, a, a sculptor or sculptist, whatever word that is. Um, he learns how to do that. And then what he, what he, but he's never truly satisfied. And I think the movie, although a comedy, displays this tension really well, that even if we were to get everything we wanted with zero accountability or zero repercussions, it still wouldn't be enough for us it would still leave us unsatisfied. And this is where we find the book of Solomon, or Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. This book of Ecclesiastes sort of displays a life without God. And it was most likely written by scholars, uh, most likely written by Solomon. Most scholars would agree that although there are many who say that it's perhaps one of David's other sons who became king, but the nature of the book it seems to point to Solomon of his over-excess and over-indulgence. And Solomon's life is sort of like our society right now. We live in a culture of instant gratification, of instant pleasure. We can have food delivered to our homes from any place that we want. We can order something from Amazon, anything that the mind can think of. We can have it in a matter of days. We can watch a movie with a couple of clicks. We can, watch, uh, we can listen to songs whenever we want. 
and we find news and data within seconds. But here's the problem. It's not maturing us, is it? It's not giving us contentment. And Ecclesiastes is written really on the other side of this. It's written on the other side of how instantly gratifying ourselves isn't the way to live. And it's written, by, I believe, by Solomon who had it all. But it wasn't enough. And Ecclesiastes is this introspective look on a person's life who made lots of mistakes. And I believe that sometimes in our mistakes, we learn the most valuable lessons. And one of my biggest speaking mistakes of all time was when I did a wedding uh, for a couple. And it was when I was my earlier years of, of church planting. And I actually, uh, when I pronounced the husband and wife, I gave the couple the bride's last name. True story. And the, the groom turned beet red, and I think everyone thought it was a joke. Everyone started laughing. I was like, why is everybody laughing? It's weird. And the guy playing music was like, this, that's the wrong last name. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And so I had to correct it when I was telling people to join us at the rehearsal. But it was still this embarrassing thing that happened. And so what did I do? I, I began, as I began to write out my wedding manuscripts, I take the last name and I put it in bold, all caps, italicized, and underlined. And I make it the largest font on the page. And then at the rehearsal dinner, I say, let me make sure this is y'all's last name that you want to have correct. And so this is what we do when we make mistakes. Uh, we learn from mistakes. When you're younger, maybe you were more reckless. You, you, drove, you drove fast until you got that one ticket. You played a sport until you got injured. You were opinionated until you said something uh, foolish or embarrassing or hurtful. You used to go to Taco Bell late at night or ever, and then you would learn not to do that ever again. Solomon here is sort of learning from his mistakes. And we don't know, but he wrote this before he died. Of course, he wrote this before he died, but it would be weird if he didn't, right? But he wrote this toward the end of his life. And ironically, Ecclesiastes comes right after the book of Proverbs in your Bible, which is intentional because both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in Scripture, they're referred to as wisdom literature. Uh, Proverbs is sort of like lines of wisdom, quick fire statements, sort of almost fortune cookie theology and general truths about life. Example, you have Proverbs 22, verse 6, probably one of the most Famous Proverbs, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And that's a general truth, but it doesn't mean that if you raise your kids right, they're automatically going to be these great people or great lovers of God. It, it means generally, though, that it's going to happen. And so they're Proverbs, not promises. And Proverbs is general, like if you do this, this can happen. And this is how wisdom literature often works. And this is sort of like statements like this you'll find in Ecclesiastes. These are general truths of wisdom. And they're all to give us a general point about God's wisdom. And so what can we learn about wisdom from this man who's made lots of mistakes? And this is what we're going to see in God's word this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher, and I'll explain what that means in a moment. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Another reason why I think Solomon wrote it. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, there are several ways this verse is interpreted in our English translation. Some of yours says 
vanity. Some of your translations say meaningless. Some of your translations say emptiness. All is emptiness. And it means a little bit of all of these phrases, but none of them fully capture what it means. The the Hebrew word (laughs) for vanity is a word called hevel. All is hevel, which means vapor or smoke. It's like a cloud is what he's saying. It's, It's empty. When I was a little kid, I used to look at clouds and I used to think how comfortable they'd be to sit on, right? They look like fluffy pillows. And I was one of those weird kids. I'm like, what does it taste like? It's got to taste like marshmallows or something like that, right? And we think of it as it, it, it has something in it. And we look at it from a distance, it looks like it, it has substance. But if you've ever flown, you've flown through a cloud and it's nothing. It's gone. It's empty. There's no density. There's no weight. And this is what Solomon is saying that life is like. It's hevel. It's full of nothingness. He actually uses this word hevel 38 times in this short book just to prove this point. Now, there's another thing you need to know here. When he says the phrase, the preacher, some translations say, or the teacher, And the reason why it's worded this way is because Solomon is likely using a literary device here whereby he's speaking of himself as two characters. There's the author, the one who's writing the the wisdom literature, but also one who is the teacher or preacher. And the preacher or the teacher is giving this big idea, this message. And then the author gives us insight on what the teacher is saying. The author gives us space then um, to process what the teacher is saying, if that makes any sense. It's sort of like Solomon is editing his own thoughts and his own words. And this is important to know because not everything, listen, not everything the preacher is going to say is really going to make a lot of sense. Uh, let, let me give you like some examples. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19. Look at what he says. He says, a feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry, or makes wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Is that true this morning, church? Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Money solves all of our problems. Well, certainly, it means something else. And so, again, the preacher is saying a a general statement that comes directly from his art, sort of unedited, and then the author edits the thoughts. Here's another one. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 27, he says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but uh, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these things I have not found. He's saying, I've, out of all the men I've met, I've found thousands of men. I've found one that's worth anything. I haven't found a woman worth anything. Now, certainly, we need some editing, right? Some of you ladies are like, I'll give him an edit, right? You're right? And so the preacher, he says something that's sort of this crazy statement, this bold statement, this sort of um, uh, flippant statement, and then the editor helps us understand it. I mean, sometimes what he says is not helpful at all. Here's another one, Ecclesiastes 11.3. If a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where it, the tree falls, 
there it will lie. Thank you for that one, buddy. Appreciate it. Now, this is why this is helpful, because what he says at the very beginning, when he says all is vanity, all is hevel, life is like this empty cloud, without the editor's thoughts, you can leave here being very discouraged. Like tomorrow you'll go to work and say, what did you learn at church? Well, I learned about how life is so empty. You have a really inspirational pastor, don't you? So before we get too depressed, let's read what Solomon says next. Verse 3. He says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. And all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun." Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to to search and out wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. All is hevel and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon makes this statement, and you're like, I thought that was supposed to make me not depressed. This is, makes me more depressed. <laughs> Solomon makes this statement under the sun 29 times throughout this book. And the reason he's using this phrase, and this is where the author or the editor helps us out, because when he talks about under the sun, then you have to also contrast that with what would be then over the sun. That would be heaven. So Solomon is showing us a world under the sun. He's intentionally Letting us see a world without God's perspective. And that is why this chapter is so somber. He's saying this is what the world is like because of the fall of man, because of sin. Scholars point out that Solomon's repeated uses of the word toil or futility. It goes back to Genesis 3 when he says men would then live because of the fall, because of sin, with thorns and thistles, with pain and suffering with agony. And so Solomon is sort of poetically bringing us to what this feels like. That there's nothing new under the sun. That all is vanity. Everything is all gone to hevel. That should be a t-shirt. And at this point, you, you could spend your whole life. And this point is you could spend your whole life to try to find meaning and, and purpose. You could try to find it through your career, your Pursuit of love, but nothing, his point is, nothing really 
changes. But what does he say remains? He says the earth. The sun goes up. The sun comes down. The waves still crash upon the shore. That remains. When I was in high school, I used to drive from Rocky Mount to Greenville, uh, uptown Greenville, because Greenville at that time, in the late 90s, had a, a cool store that sold like used CDs. It was called CD Alley. Anybody that old to know CD? You're not going to raise your hand to that. Um, it was called CD Alley, and it was not far from like the Cubbies downtown, fifth, I think it was 10th and Evans. And um, we would drive through and just find this place, and it was like, man, downtown Greenville was so cool, right? And that's the way I thought of it as a high school kid. But now I've moved here, and I've been here for over a decade, and now what you find downtown, you can't find CD Alley. What you find are now taller buildings, apartments, condos, parking decks, over $100 million to see this renovation happen. And we can get really excited about that. When we go to Raleigh, I've been in Eastern North Carolina most of my life. You can go to Raleigh, you can go to Wilmington, you see all these things change, these buildings being built, these structures, these, these buildings being renovated. But you know what hasn't changed? Pollen. <laughs> Hurricanes. You can spend a hundred million, you can spend millions and billions of dollars. You can't, you're going to make those things go away. You're not going to stop hurricanes. You're not going to stop pollen in eastern North Carolina. Houses and buildings will be built, but they'll wear, they'll wear down and deteriorate. Technology will become outdated. Ideas will become old. There's nothing new under the sun, but you know what will always stand? If you go to the Outer Banks, you'll find that the ocean is still crashing on the shore. And it's always been since creation. You find that and go to Asheville, you found that mountains are still standing. And if you were a kid and you went there, and you, they're still standing the same way. And I know that mountains and, and oceans move, but they're still generally in the same place. I've gotten into fishing the last five years. You can learn about fishing patterns that shad just ran through the Tar River. And they do that every year around the same time. You can go to uh, Weldon, North Carolina, and find striper bass. They run up here around uh, early, early spring. You can go to Oriental, and you can go there in August or September, and Red Drum have been doing that and going there and migrating there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Longer than buildings have been standing in eastern North Carolina are those rhythms of God's creation and his point is, we can create and we can build and we can innovate. There's nothing new under the sun. He goes, the sun's going to come down. The sun's going to go up. The, the waves are still going to crash on the sea. God's rhythm of creation is still going to move because what he's trying to say is, he's the unchanging God. We change all the time. We're the unpredictable ones. And this is what the editor is doing here. He's taking us from a place of where the preacher says everything is meaningless, and he's comparing it to something, something that is unmovable, something that never changes. His point is there's an unchanging God here at work behind the scenes. And I believe, friends, that this is an over, overlooked characteristic of God, that he's constant. 
that he's immovable. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, as he is forever. And this is why what the preacher says is so powerful. He's saying everything changes. There's nothing new, but God does not change. This is why David, throughout the Psalms, calls God his rock, calls God his fortress, because he's saying God is always constant. God is my protector. And friend, this is good news. Ideas can come and go. Relationships can come and go. You lose friends, loved ones die. Wealth and health are not guaranteed securities, but he says God remains the same. So if you're looking for stability in your life, friend, maybe I challenge you to look toward the Lord. Maybe even in your life, you've seen people come and go. Maybe you don't know who to trust. Brothers and sisters, he's saying there's an unchanging God here who does not move. May the Lord be your constant. Verse 16. It says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I've applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, which means irritation or annoyance. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, I know many of you were probably shocked by this statement that Solomon just made here, that wisdom and knowledge are madless and folly. And I know the junior high and high school students in the room are like, see, mom and dad, this is why I shouldn't go to school. It's just going to lead me to madness and folly. But this is what the Bible says, mom and dad, right? But the Bible is not against education here. here here's what Solomon's doing. If you look at verses 1 through 15, He's saying that about all of his experiences and ideas, there's nothing new. He's saying, I've done it all, I've seen it all, and it's all the same. And then in verses 16 through 18, he's saying that, uh, that um, he's saying, I have been the wisest in my day, and I've even grown in knowledge, but it's just brought me more sorrow. In other words, the more the preacher understood life under the sun, the greater the despair. The more he learned the more he realized he didn't know. I, I used to be shocked when people say they, they didn't know something. I, would, I used to see that as unwise. Now when I meet people and they say, I don't know, I actually think they are more wise. Because at least it displays honesty and humility. I thought I was a knowledgeable theologian because I went to Bible school and seminary, and then I, then I became a pastor, then I started preaching through books of the Bible, and then I realized I don't know much about the Bible. I thought I was going to be good at being married because I read some books on being married before I got married. I took some classes on what it means to be married, and then I got married. And I'm like, woe is me. I don't know how to be married. I thought we would have this whole parenting thing figured out because I took a child and adolescent development class in college and then we had kids or mainly Jess had kids with me and then I learned I don't know how to parent I need your help I need your wisdom 
I don't know what I'm doing. And this is Solomon's point. He's saying, I've searched to master this world through knowledge and wisdom, and it left me with great sorrow. Because, friends, here's what I want you to see this morning. This, so- this sorrow that God gives is actually God's grace. Because this world is a terrible, terrible Savior. We can enjoy it, and God will give us these wonderful experiences he gives us, but it's not designed to be our all in all. So weird transition. We used to have a cat. (laughs) I didn't know how to write that any other way. We used to have a cat. And I remember when we first got this cat, we had to show her where the litter box was, and we had to share where the food was. And one of the things I quickly noticed about this cat is that she did not speak English at all. And so I would show her the food, and by showing her, I would point. There's the food. There's the litter box. And what happens is she doesn't look at the food. What does she look at? My finger. Over and over. The food is there. And then she meows and runs up to my finger and sniffs and licks my finger. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world because she would get distracted by the finger. And this is what we do with the world. God has given us this beautiful place to live. And the reason why he's given us this beautiful place to live is because he's saying, I'm pointing you to something greater. This is where I'm pointing you to so that you could really be fed. And we are like the cat. We constantly sniff the finger. Don't quote that or tweet that, please. But what we do is we get caught up and we just get distracted and we miss him in the process. And Solomon's saying, there is great sorrow here. This is a sad way to live. Now, don't miss this because Solomon isn't saying that we shouldn't enjoy life. Rather, he is saying that we should not, he's not saying we should live in a cave and seclude ourselves and deprive ourselves. No, God gives us good things so that we would know that he is good. When you sit near the ocean and you wonder in amazement and you marvel at God's greatness, the beach, the ocean weren't just made to give you a tan and possible skin cancer. It's for us to look and know that God is good. If you have a specific taste for something, that's the Lord's pursuit of your heart. That's why there's not just one kind of wings. There's many kinds of wings. That's that's why pelicans, snowballs, there's not one flavor There's over a hundred flavors. And each of those flavors are to say, the reason why you like that is because God is wooing you and drawing you to himself. Some of you like country music. Some of you like classic country music. Some of you like hip-hop. Some of you like R&B. Some of you like the show The Office. The rest of you are dead to me. But you know you have all of these likes and these things that you love. And God is putting those things in your life right now to draw you to him so that you would taste and you would see that he is good when he creates when he when he created the world he says he saw that it was good creation teaches us this and we reject what happens is we like our first parents adam and eve instead of allowing it to point us to the creator we then worship the created thing 
We worship the creator, the creation over the creator. Uh, Romans 1 verse 18, Paul says it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, he says, is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are, he says, without excuse. He's saying God has revealed his attributes to the world to point us to something greater. And he says, because of this, we're without excuse. We're without excuse. So friend, is it not a gift of God that God would bring us sorrow in this world? That this world would not satisfy us. That we can never attain enough knowledge to be fully happy. That we can experience enough, that we can never experience enough to try uh, true, to have true fulfillment. No, he says, look to an immovable God. An unchanging God. And without it, Solomon says, it's all hevel. It's a vapor. James 4.13, he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What does he say about life? He says it's here and it's gone. It's hevel. So here's the thing. Because of our sin, our hearts are naturally bent to find ultimate fulfillment in the created thing over the creator. That's what we do. That's what Adam and, Adam and Eve, the curse of sin, has been brought to us. This is what we do. And because of our depravity, we are like our, my cat, only staring at the finger and never finding where to be fed. So without the Lord, Solomon's saying, we are stuck in hevel. But here's the good news of the gospel. We have a Savior who entered hevel for us. That God would send Jesus to the world so that he would then bring us to the Father. This is why Jesus says it so well in John, John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you have known my Father also. From, so from now on, you do not know him, have seen me. And this is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus would come into heaven for us, that he would live born of a virgin, did not carry the curse of sin that we carry, that he would live a perfect, sinless life, that he would die in our place for our sins, so that we then would have a relationship with our creator, with our God, so that we would find ultimate joy and satisfaction in him, that our Savior went to heaven for us. So perhaps you're in a place where you resonate with Solomon's words. You've experienced life. You've experienced knowledge and you've experienced wisdom. And you find yourself, as Solomon says, with much vexation, much frustration and annoyance. Maybe you've experienced loss and sorrow. Maybe you didn't get what you wanted in this world. The opportunity that you thought you deserved. Or maybe you find yourself constantly chasing for more. 
just one more item in my Amazon gift card, uh, Amazon cart would make me happy. Just one more piece of clothing, just one more accessory, just one more trip to the fridge, just one more drink, just one more relationship. And the cycle just keeps you empty, and it's never enough. But what if I told you this morning the worst thing for you would be to be satisfied in the things that you were actually chasing? What if it's God's grace to you that he would show you that these things are not to give you ultimate joy? That it's just chasing the wind? Wouldn't it be cruel of God to look at us and say, I'm just going to let you chase the wind? Wouldn't he be merciful to allow it, to bring us to a desperate place where we finally cry out and say, enough. There's got to be more to life. And Solomon's saying, it's not under the sun, it's over the sun. It's this place called heaven, and it's this God who is unmovable, he's unchanging, he's steady, he's secure, he's not hevel. He's come to Hevel to defeat Hevel so that we would live for him. And because of this grace, everything in our life should be different. And because of the gospel, life does not have to be Hevel. That we can have this abundant life with him, with this unchanging and with this unmovable God. And so wherever you are this morning, Maybe you're in a place where you constantly feel dissatisfied in the world. Perhaps that's God's grace drawing you to him to show you that he is a God to be trusted, that he's unmovable, that he's unchanging, and that he could be your constant, that he could be your satisfaction, that he could be your joy. May that be my prayer for you today. God, help us. Father, you're good to us.